Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're prescribed Nurtec ODT, Remegipant 75 milligrams for migraine attacks, does the fear of running out of medication stop you from treating every migraine attack? If so, ask about two eight-packs per month. That's 16 tablets, and most insurance plans cover it. Nurtec ODT is approved for the acute treatment of migraine attacks and preventive treatment of episodic migraine in adults. Don't take if allergic to Nurtec ODT or any of its ingredients. Allergic reactions can occur even days after using and include trouble breathing, rash, and swelling of the face, mouth, tongue, or throat. Most common side effects were nausea and indigestion stomach pain. A maximum dose of 75 milligrams can be taken daily to treat migraine attacks or every other day to prevent them. The safety of using more than 18 doses of Nurtec ODT in a 30-day period has not been established. For full prescribing information, call 1-833-4-NURTEC or visit nurtech.com. Double the packs to treat more migraine attacks. Ask your doctor if two eight-packs of Nurtec ODT is right for you. Well, well, well. Shopping for a car? Yep. Carvana made financing a car as smooth as can be. Oh, yeah? I got pre-qualified instantly and had real terms personalized just for me. Hmm, doesn't get much smoother than that. Well, I got to browse thousands of car options on Carvana, all within my budget. Doesn't get much smoother than that. It does. I actually wanted a car that seemed out of my range, but I was able to add a cosigner and found my dream car. It doesn't get much... Oh, it gets smoother. It's getting delivered tomorrow. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get pre-qualified today. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Welcome, Elizabeth Thompson, Liz Thompson, author, journalist, broadcaster, and interviewer. Well, you've published a number of books, beginning in 1980 with Conclusions on the Wall, New Essays on Bob Dylan. Yes, three widely praised, <laughs> young indiscretion. Three widely praised anthologies on John Lennon, Bob Dylan, and David Bowie. And what we'll be talking about today a biography of Joan Byers titled The Last Leaf. Now, apart from her own memoir, is this the only English language biography of Byers? Yes. Um, so far as I'm aware, there is a sort of German sort of monograph, I think, from a 
from a, someone's PhD, there, there's been a sort of French pictorial sort of melange um, fairly recently. Um, and of course, she's just in Berlin, actually. She's just done a, she, she's just been at the Berlin Film Festival. So she's you know, documentary has premiered, which has had very good reviews, I'd say. Well, I want to start with you because um, as a child, you played guitar. You got a guitar from your sister, I understand. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I was about 11, 10, maybe a bit younger. And I've been learning piano for quite a while. And uh, my sister worked in Spain and she brought home her boss to spend an English Christmas. And uh, he stayed quite a long time. Uh, we, had, <laughs> we had some riotous family fun. And uh, not long after they returned, um, a package arrived from El Corte Inglés in Barcelona, and it was this beautiful blonde Spanish, genuinely Spanish guitar. Um, so I had to learn to play it. And in those days, there weren't quite as many sort of, now there are endless kind of easy you know, chord books and so on. I mean, then if you went to the library, there was sort of classical guitar books, which I didn't want to learn. So I was sort of fumbling around, didn't really know what to do. And I found in my when I was back in Spain, I found in her record collection, she had the old radiogram upstairs, the step new stereo was downstairs. Um, I found Joan Baez Volume 2. It's a black and white cover. It was already um, about you know, 1961, I think. So it was a few years old. And, um, you know, the kind of selling point, I didn't know who she was. The selling point was to show this young woman um, with long, dark hair, sitting in sort of dappled shades. And on the back of the album, um, she was holding what looked like a Spanish guitar. It's probably a Goya. Well, it was mostly quite straightforward. You know, I could hear, oh, yeah, that's a three chords there, you know, one, four, dominant seventh, minor, maybe a second minor. You know, I could see how you could do that. So I kind of was able to learn stuff by ear. And then I found the Joan Baez songbook in the library, uh, then more records. So I just began to learn. And, and you know, because she had such fantastic phrasing and she was a very good guitar picker, she was in that sense easy to learn from. Uh, so as I explored and explored, it was sort of a, she was sort of a Venn diagram through two sort of bits of things that I sort of vaguely knew about in my sort of 12 year old kind of you know, brain. I'd go to Dobell's folk record shop and, and so on. And I found, uh, I found kind of interesting stuff that was kind of legendary. Eventually this Dylan Byers US from Newport and then a friend, my, still my closest friend bought me um, the old folkways record of the March on Washington, which included Paul Martin Luther King's speech and by his singing and various other, which I still treasure if I want a good cry, I put it on. And, um, and of course that was fascinating because I, you know, I heard of Martin Luther King, who had recently died, but I didn't particularly know about the March on Washington. So, you know, the music and her life became a sort of way to explore um, 1960s and 70s American history, which of course was you know, preoccupied with Vietnam, with the civil rights movement. So I became really, um, you know, I was fascinated by the music and by her, and I, and I came to love her voice, especially on Joan Myers Volume 5, which has this amazing classical track on it by Villanobos. I thought, wow, <laughs> she could really sing. Um, but, but it was just, you know, it was a way I just got further and further and further and deeper and deeper into um, American folk music in its broadest sense and history. So I was you know, exploring Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Phil Oaks and Judy Collins, and, you know, and then as I caught up with her life and got a bit older and like a bit of money from Saturday's jobs, I was eventually singing a little bit myself, you know, I was buying all kinds of albums. You know, I remember buying Diamonds and Rust in 75 and thinking, wow, 
Jessie's a great song. I mean, Diamond is Rust is a great song. That's hers, but Jessie's a great song. Janice Ian, I haven't heard of her. So I went out and bought Janice Ian. And then that was a whole, another whole range of stuff to explore. So it's been, a, um, she started me, as I told her, on a sort of exciting and ultimately quite expensive journey. Um, and that's that obsession that began, um, how old am I now? Not old, you know, 50 something years ago has remained with me. It's a real passion, you know. What did you understand about the complexities of her style by playing the guitar yourself? But as a six-string um, guitar player, um, Baez was she was very very good, and she you know she continued to develop as a guitar player. I mean, if you look at what she you know I think finally in the eighties nineties she started to have some guitar lessons. But if you listen to what she was doing even on the last tour and from the kind of nineties on, I mean, really um, quite complicated. Sort of finger solo stuff way up the fingerboard and she was good at you know there are a couple of, I mean Babe I'm Gonna Leave You which is a song that you know um uh, obsessed Fred uh, Robert Plant I think you know got them going where she does that amazing tremolo which is very hard I mean I knew I mean I did learn classical guitar later on it's very hard to sustain that kind of even tremolo especially when you're singing as well because you know you're thinking about all the stuff you're singing and so she was her skill as a guitarist it's gone largely unremarked, but it's not to be sniffed at. When you were very young, your parents took you to a Joan Baez concert. How did that come about and what was your experience? Well, she was coming to do a concert at the Rainbow Theatre, which had recently opened in um, Finsbury Park, North London. Um, and um, I, she was doing three nights. You know, it, was, it was quite a big deal. She was big news. She hadn't been for a while, I guess. And uh, she was doing three nights, one with Nidhi Farina, which I wished I'd also been able to go and see, but it didn't occur to me. I don't think my parents have taken me more than once. I mean, years later, I used to go to lots of nights. Um, but anyway, I said, I really want to go. And my father, who grew up down the road from what was then the Astoria Cinema, and you know, my parents lived over with his parents when they got married after the war. You're not going there on your own. It's a rough area, you know, uh, but we'll take you. So they got tickets on um, the 18th of December, 1971. And actually, um, they loved the concert. Um, and I was thrilled to see her live. And it was a... I suppose it was the first proper, I mean, it wasn't a rock concert, but I suppose it was the first concert like that that I'd been to. Um, the Rainbow then, I mean, it's beautiful again now, but it's owned by a sort of church. Um, was a fantastic, you know, Art Deco masterpiece with this sort of starry ceiling and it had Joe's lights from the Fillmore East. So it was a very spectacular, you know, it felt very cool. Um, and I probably didn't appreciate how cool it was or, you know, I'm sure there was some interesting people there. Um, so that really, that cemented my obsession. You said that um, Joan Byers became a Venn diagram mm. uh, that you explored. So what do you mean by that? And what did she actually represent for you? All that great sort of 60s, tumult, you know, tumultuous 60s history was unfolding. Um, and it was, you know, horrible and, and violent. But it was, you know, it was very interesting. Um, and um, I just began, you know, it wasn't anything at school. I just began exploring it on my own. So I was buying all sorts of, all sorts of books. You know, I'd kind of saw, I mean, lots of, you know, she would reference something, but then I'd kind of, you know, I'd read about Dylan or I'd read about Pete Seeger and something else would be referenced. So I'd go off and explore that. And in those days, of course, you went to the library or bought, a, you know, a book. You know, I really kind of, I really studied quite hard. I got into it and, and had this whole second, you know, interest that had nothing to do with what I was learning at school. I was just, I was just fascinated. You know, the whole kind of New York, the much of it just existed in my mind's 
I certainly the village, the Greenwich Village, you know, existed in my mind. This whole scene was in my mind's eye and ear long before I went there. Um, but it was, you know, I've, I've just had I had just had this great interest in Americana music and, and history. You know, and, and I think what what has always appealed to me, um, you know, about songs that I first learned listening to Bias, but I mean, if you listen to um, Woody Guthrie or Pete Seeger, all those people, they were all, you know, all those songs tell a story. And some of them, some of them told quite general stories about picking cotton or whatever, but some of them told very specific. I mean, certainly when you get to Dylan, they're telling very specific stories about who killed William Zanzinger and all, you know, William Zanzinger killed Porti Carroll and so on. So it was a, you know, I, I, I always think music song is a very valuable history lesson. It's a very easy way of absorbing kinds of information and being sent off you know down highways and byways to explore things that might otherwise pass you by. Tell me about um, Barzi's family her parents and her grandparents which were um, in essence a, a, a big influence on her. Yes I mean she's you know her mother um, was Scottish English um, mother was born in, in Scotland um, uh, so she has this sort of Scottish English blood um, and on both sides, that the father, of course, from Mexico, um, came to the United States as, as a little boy, first to, to um, Texas, and then eventually to Brooklyn. Um, and they were both, both her grandfathers were ministers, which of course she wrote about later on, which she wrote about a bit in, in Daybreak. Um, Episcopalian on her mother's side. I found the church that her father, her grandfather uh, preached at, where he had a sort of community for a long time, which is now, Spanish. It was the first Spanish Methodist church, I think, in the United States, in Brooklyn. And I found people there who remembered her grandfather and her grandmother. So it was a very active. So they were her, her paternal grandparents were very active in kind of Brooklyn um, community. Um, they were very uh, her, her grandmother was and her, her grandfather was very active in trying to integrate you know trying to to make spanish speakers feel at home he wanted them to speak english but he was very keen that they should be not be second-class citizens and he in fact engaged with president roosevelt um her grandmother sort of ran the choir and all sorts of stuff you know very much you know I mean, lots of these kids would not have had much families would not have had much money they started a summer camp for hispanic kids up the hudson valley or the walker valley i think just upstate new york um so uh, you know, she obviously, and her, 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 her paternal, her maternal grandfather too, who was slightly more of a sort of raggedy life, I think, and um, was widowed and then several times married and so on. Um, but she had on on both sides. It was this very strong social conscience, you know, pacifist, um, serious, you know, and I'm sure a great awareness of. You know the religion in its broadest sense. I mean, I, she wouldn't call herself religious, but I think she would. She would agree that she's spiritual. And of course, what her father in his in his adult life came to was the Quaker um, church. And she went to Quaker meetings with her parents, didn't she? So yes, what impact do you think that had on her? Well, so her father, who was a you know quite a renowned scientist, um, was you know they, in the fifties they tried to co-opt him on some you know, defence stuff, and he didn't have a sort of crisis of conscience, and it was her mother who said, let's go to a Quaker meeting in Buffalo. So they went to the Buffalo Society of Friends, taking the Joan and her two sisters. 
Um, and of course, the kids hated it, as I suppose most kids would. Um, but she sort of went, I think, till she was 18, because she did what your parents told you in those days. Um, and I, you know, she probably wouldn't call herself a Quaker. I don't know, maybe she would think she's a Quaker still, but she certainly still keeps silence. I think the, you know, all the, the tenets of the Quaker faith, the Quaker beliefs have been, are really strong and really visible in her lives. And she still has lots of friends from within the Quaker community, the American Friends Service Committee, and of course a lot of the, you know, clearly that, you know, the, those beliefs uh, discussed around the family dinner table, um, discussed it on Sunday mornings, were clearly had a profound uh, influence on her still. I mean, you, you know, they've kind of shaped her life. You mentioned that her father was Mexican and she inherited yeah. his looks. Um, when was she aware of her difference, if I can put it that way? Oh, I think pretty early on, because of course she'd never, especially in Southern California, um, where, you know, she was referred to as a dumb Mexican. And she's talked quite a lot about the fact that she was made to feel, you know, she's the kind of, I mean, I didn't, I met her. She's very like her mother as well, funnily enough. She's like both parents in a bizarre kind of way. So she was made to feel different and she did feel different. Um, and, you know, the family moved a lot because her father didn't have tenure as an academic. So it was hard to find friends, hard to put down roots. So I think that the period in sort of Palo, around Palo Alto, which is our sort of Stanford campus, really, that was sort of happier. But I think Los Angeles, Southern California was definitely not because there, you know, the Mexicans were sort of, migrant fruit pickers or work, you know, they were migrant workers, like Woody Guthrie's song. You know. So I think she had a hard time. And what saved her was the guitar. Her acts of um, civil disobedience started early. Can you sort of tell me about that and also how her parents reacted to her? Well, they started in high school because she refused to go home for a duck and cover exercise. You know? And uh, she said she'd read her father's textbooks. You know, she knew how long it would take to get missile to get from Moscow to uh, high school and she refused to she refused to say so she stayed in school um, and I think her father warned, commended the idea but warned her against it because of course it was the era of kind of communism and uh, Reds under the bed and all that you know and she'd be ostracized for doing so uh, which of course I think she was you know I think a commie it was in the local paper, but that was her first act of civil disobedience. I mean, she went to um, a Martin Luther King speech when she was 17, which had a huge impact on yes. her. Can you uh, tell the me cinema. about that speech and what it was? Yeah, she went to a sort of youth conference. I think it was a Quaker, sort of Quaker-type youth conference at the cinema, which was on the Monterey, apparently a very spectacular place still there on the Monterey Peninsula. Uh, and um, there, you know, I, I found people, who remember, kids who remembered meeting her there when one was on the same bus that took them down to Monterey um, and you know she played a you know completely inappropriate song I think just a, a pop song but there was King as I suppose then still quite unknown um, but speaking I mean how amazing is that to go to an event you hear this and then of course within you know no time at all she's on the podium with him and of course she was present with him at certainly present the March on Washington which everyone really remembers I have a dream she was with him on many other occasions in the South as well, you know, in Grenada, Mississippi, helping to take kids to a new desegregated school. Um, other places, you know, in that Birmingham, in that summer of, what's known as the Birmingham Summer Race. She was in Birmingham, Alabama, um, before the March on Washington. And, um, you know, the kind of, 
the amazing thing about those two in concert albums from the very early 60s, which were her third, they were her third and fourth albums, was that they were recorded on southern campuses. You know, look at, look at the credits. And the, you know, her, she, she had a nice old lefty, probably communist manager, Annie Greenhill, um, who her father had got to, had met on an on a anti-nuclear march in, in Boston. Um, so they'd set up, they'd set up this recording schedule. She, you know, wended her way across the South um, to, you know, some really, you know, Miles College, Alabama, you know, Tuscaloosa, all these places. There were sort of way stations, you know, in the civil rights struggle. Um, and none of the, the audiences could not, had to be integrated. So, um, and as she's kind of said, after a lot of, a lot of black kids didn't know who she was, but, you know, there was this, big concert on their campus. And of course, if white folks wanted to see her, they had to come on to black campuses. You know, they, many of these colleges were actually black colleges. So they had to, the white folks had to come on to a black campus. They had to buy tickets, they had to find their way. So you had sort of black people and white people sitting together in the audience. And you know, now you think, yeah, so what? But I mean, if you think of 62, 63, um, it's pretty extraordinary on one of the albums, you know, and so here a bit nervous, and then she says, "Well, we, should we sing? Should we sing? We shall overcome." You know, and they all sing, and you can sense that sort of, you know, presumably, I suppose not every not every white kid there was necessarily kind of, you know, on her wavelength. But they, I mean, who knows? But you know, you could hear them all singing, and that's pretty. That's pretty amazing. What sort of friendship did she have with Martin Luther King? I think she was a pretty close friend. I mean, so certainly they, they you know, she was. Um, you know, she tells a story about being. Sent in, I think it was in, in, in maybe in Birmingham. She was sent in to sing in the wake. So he had to go and preach. And he was very you know, fast asleep. So I think they were. I think they were pretty close friends. I don't know to what extent they were in touch when, um, you know, she was on the road and he was on the road. But he did come to visit her with Andy Young when she was in jail for um, aiding and abetting the draft. So I get like, and he did that to make a, you know, obviously they were friends. But for King, it was also making a statement because. Um, King had, you know, it was difficult for him to come out against the Vietnam War. She and he had a, you know, something of a disagreement over that, as lots of people did, saying, you know, Martin, you've got to come out, you know, you've got to, you know, if we can sort the war problem, you know, if we, one problem's interlinked with all the others. You know, I, I think they were, I think they were pretty close friends. And if you watch her talking about him, there's a, a little documentary called King the Wilderness Years, um, where she talks about him and see how profoundly moved she is, um, you know, this very close-up facial shot, you can see she's really, you know, still very, very close to the surface for her. I mean, you mentioned that she was at the, uh, I think it was at the Lincoln Memorial when when King did the uh, I Have a Dream speech, and also yeah. Dylan was there. Yeah. Um, there must have been immense positivity on that day did she talk about that and what what she felt the future might be? I mean, I you know she talked about. I said what it was like. What was it like being on the podium? You know, did you next? Because I mean, she was very very you know physically you know as the crowd. I mean, it's not a huge space up there, and you know she always talked about you know as far as I'm aware, he he largely improvised the speech. You know, he had a few notes, which is kind of pretty. I mean, pretty amazing to have sat there while he was doing that. Um, I mean, she would never describe herself as an optimist. I mean, she would always say she's a realist. Um, 
was she I mean I and she would say that things are far worse now than they ever were in the 60s when I think there was you know at certain points in the 60s there clearly was hope and obviously the civil, you know, the civil rights act was passed but then of course in you know, they also had to contend with the Birmingham church bombing, for example, when the so there was a lot, you know, there were there were lots of there were lots of gruesome however much hope they had, and obviously they did, everyone. You know, the the great triumph of the march on Washington, which was extraordinary, a you know, quarter of a million people. Um, you know, um, the next month, you know, four children were blown up in that Birmingham church bombing at you know, Sunday school. So, you know, it wasn't exactly a you know, an easy trajectory. Um, but she, you know, she's, she has never given up. I mean, she's always, you know, she's always, she says you have to, it's little victories and big defeats. That's what you have to embrace. You know, it's not going, it's not going to be, nothing's going to be an easy win. You have to celebrate the little victories. Has she ever talked about um, the political power of music? And when she first realised for her, that she had a political power through her music? Well, obviously, for the first couple of years, she was just singing folk. I mean, the most political song she sang was What Have They Done to the Rain, which was Malvina Reynolds' song about nuclear rainfall. You know, I think in early concerts, I don't think she said that much between songs. You know, she was probably paralysed by fear. You know, once she sang, she was all right, but she was paralysed by fear. And then at a certain point, she, you know, she learns to speak a little bit about social, political stuff. And then certainly by the time I saw her, she was, you know, concerts were a lot of rapping and a lot of um, discussion of politics. You know, all those singers that were coming up around the time of Dylan and sometimes in the wake of Dylan, you know, they they were phenomenal songs. You think of their birth and fortune again, which featured right through her career. Um, you know, they were, they were powerful songs through which she could speak. And then, you know, I think that it was to, to quite a great extent her her, you know, her meeting and then marriage to David Harris, who died very recently, um, was was actually very important for her because he was a good. He was younger than her, younger than she. Um, you know, they met through the resistance movement. She he founded this organisation called Resistance, and they went on a speaking tour and see he'd speak, she'd sing across the country, which is documented in the film called Carry It On. And I think um, so. They were they were a power couple before Tom and Jane really. But I think, I think when you kind of see her before her marriage and then after, I think she learned a lot from being with David Harris and seeing him speak. You know, he was at Stanford. You know, he was a kind of scholarship boy at Stanford, very bright. Um, and I think just being with him, and you know, I suspect she she'd founded the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence very early on, so she her reading was kind of directed. Um, by her first mentor, Ira Sandfeld, but I, then David Harris must have introduced a lot of other stuff. But certainly she learned to speak and be on the road and, and kind of engage in a somewhat different way, I think, through him. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How did she get introduced to the, uh, the coffee houses in Cambridge? Uh, her father made, it was the latest paternal move. He got a job at MIT. And uh, so they moved across country and they moved a lot. And they've been all over the country. It was a very peripatetic childhood. And um, been, you know, been in Iraq. Um, so, you know, the move to kind of frigid Boston was the, was the, the latest move. And they lived in, in Cambridge, across the river. And her father thought he'd take the kind of, you know, the family to a coffee shop one night. So yeah, I think he, that she says that he envisioned, you know, his, what he wanted his kids to go to college, of course, but he envisioned this kind of intellectual dialogue, you know, there were people playing chess, there were people discussing books. You know, that's, I think he hoped it would be like a salon, you know, and instead, you know, all buyers saw was the guy under the you know, yellow light playing Plessier d'Amour on his guitar. Uh, and that, of course, was the beginning of the, well, pretty early on in the folk revival. But obviously Club 47, um, uh, Cambridge was where she, where she came of age, where she, you know, that's where she made her name. But, she, you know, she was obviously um, a quick study because, um, you know, she, she learned guitar, you know, that's where she was really learning guitar was in, while they were living in Cambridge. Uh, and one of the people she learned from was Debbie Green, who was married to Eric Anderson. Well, she went to, went to Boston University allegedly to, sing, to um, study drama. I'm sure she had no interest in it. <coughs> Famously met Betsy Siggins and all the other people there in Boston scene. Um, and instead of... Um, you know, instead of studying, she was goofing off every afternoon learning folk songs and playing around Harvard Yard. So it's a very intense, you know, she's supposedly being a student, but it's obviously a very, what she's really a student of is folk song, you know, guitar, uh, hanging around at all the clubs. And there were lots of them. Club 47 was the one she really put on the map, but Tala's Coffee Grinder was the place that her uh, dad took the wall to one evening shortly after it arrived in Boston. You mentioned Debbie Green. How important was Debbie Green to her career? Well, this, I mean, it's, she's somewhat controversial because there are people who say that, you know, had it not been for Baez, Debbie Green would have been very celebrated and would have, she'd have been famous and so on. I did find a small article by Debbie Green not too long before she died where she said that's complete nonsense. If I'd have wanted to push forward, I would have done so. You know, I had asthma as a child. I was a big smoker. I didn't have a great voice. You know, I really, now, you know, it'll always be those who were, Jodie Mitchell has said some pretty unpleasant things about Buyers and taking Debbie Green side, but Joni Mitchell said lots of bizarre things about lots of people. So, but uh, I think Debbie Green certainly, um, as a person to learn from, was very important. And Bias has paid tribute to her when she died. Um, she wrote a long tribute. Um, so certainly her guitar technique and the repertoire, I think. Um, and I, you know, I think every every young singer, they were probably all doing broadly the same songs. You know, the ballads. How pivotal was the Newport? Um, folk festival to oh, her career absolutely pivotal so when she was so she began to sing around boston you know she got her start in club 47 
um, 25 bucks a night or something. And very soon there were kind of lines around the block. Um, and then she went to the Gate of Hall in Chicago, which was Al Grossman's famous club where a debtor at Sign Indeed. You know, she was, you know, she met a debtor who was a very important figure um, in all sorts of ways. She met a debtor at the Gate of Hall. So Byers had, I think, a two week residency at the Gate of Hall. Um, and then the Newport Folk Festival came up and um, a debtor promised Joan Senior, Byers' mum, that she and her husband would look after. They'd take her with them and that they'd look after her, you know, because she's very young, remember. I mean, you know, in those days, 18 was still very young. Um, so it was sort of agree. Bob Gibson um, was the MC at the Gate of Horn. So she met him there. So it was agreed that um, he would introduce her. The bill, the Newport bill was full. There were no, it was the first Newport folk festival, jazz festival of what people knew about. So the 1959 festival was the very first Newport folk festival. Uh, Bob Gibson was the MC. So it was agreed that he would, you know, she knew she would come on stage. But it was an unannounced appearance. And, um, you know, if you listen to the recording, which I'm sure you have, um, it is extraordinary because it's very, very exciting. You know, we're crossing two very contrasting songs. You know, Virgin Mary had one son and we are crossing Jordan River. You know, one languid and gentle, the other upbeat, you know, real energy. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. She said, in my book of destiny, the first page yeah. had been turned. Yeah, so she was nervous as hell. And then when she came, you know, when she came, you know, there were 13,000 people there, which seemed like this huge audience. Um, and she walked off the stage and you could hear on the live recording the response is extraordinary. And then Robert Shelton, I think, gave the first mention of her in the New York Times. You know, the star was born at the first New York Festival. So then immediately people wanted to sign her up. Grossman wants to sign her up. She, um, Grossman managed to be to Marion Dillon, of course, very soon. She didn't like what he was offering. You know, she didn't like the big business. Um, she went with Maddie Greenhill, um, rejected C- CBS records, went to Vanguard, which was kind of much more down home, lefty, classically oriented. But she was, you know, immediately she was, um, she was in huge demand. So, you know, by, so that's Newport is July 1959. By 1960, she's really beginning to be on a roll. So when people say that, um, when people, the Dylan nuts kind of try to say that she grabbed on his coattails. I mean, she was, you know, she was a name before, well before Dylan was. She got introduced to Pete Seeger's audience. She got to know Pete Seeger. And crucially, she also got to see how Pete Seeger, close to how Pete Seeger had, put the two parts of his life together. You know, he was very committed, um, socially very committed, um, been on the road with Guff. You know, he knew he was part of a different, an older generation of folkies, but he had this life of great social commitment. And that sort of showed her that that was possible. She didn't have to kind of buy into the star system that Al Grossman was sort of dangling for her. She could, you know, and she was, I mean, partly she was frightened of it, I think, but she also didn't want it. You know, she wanted... Um, it sort of was antithetical to her sort of Quaker religious upbringing. She felt it was wrong to buy into that sort of glitz and glamour. And, and you know, she has said also that you know, she earned you know, a fair amount of money quite quickly, um, which, uh, you know, her family had difficulty with. They never had, had money as a family, um, and which she had difficulty with, I think. You know. And then, you know, on the cover of Time magazine, 
And also, I mean, she was she was still young. She was a yeah. woman in a male-dominated industry yeah, yeah. and and in an industry that ripped off everyone, whether they were female or male. It didn't yes. really didn't really matter in, in that era. So was she business savvy in in any way? Oh, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think you know, in in you know, she signed signed quote unquote with Manny Greenhill the handshake. I think that was all he ever had. Manny's been dead a few years now. I, I know his son. Um, who's still in the music business, uh, you, you know, and um, Manny Greenhill had, um, I think he looked after Paul Robeson, you know, after, you know, Pete Skillman, and, and also he was working with Pete Seeger after he was blacklisted, you know, getting getting him back on the road, getting him to concerts. And, you know, he's always bringing all these black artists up from the, you know, the black, blind black singers, he was got more passports for all these people to go on tours. So he was so Manny Green. So she signed with a guy or shook hands with a guy who was very committed not to making money, but to the music and to the kind of political principles. But I don't think to your question, was she business savvy? No, I don't. I don't think so. And I think she probably didn't want to be. Um, and I think she did say at some later stage when money was I mean, for a long time, there was money came in so she could buy it. You know, she had a phase of buying friends cars and all sorts of stuff. Um, probably not saving, probably not being wise, but, you know, she didn't kind of know about money and she wasn't much interested when she signed her the Vanguard rec, uh, record royalties were all signed over to charity quite early stage. And they're probably the only records that have really earned a huge amount of money, I would guess. But, you know, she wasn't interested. She didn't want to feel she was, she wasn't in it for the money, but she didn't want to feel that money was a priority. It clearly wasn't, you know, and that wasn't money's priority either. And, you know, in Vanguard Records, which was run by two brothers whose interest was classical music. Um, I think they did the Pete Seeger, um, the Weavers, Carnegie Hall concert, Robeson. I mean, again, that was the attraction. Um, probably paid less, probably no big advance. Um, obviously, Marie always says they ripped her off. I mean, who knows? Every, you know, every record company ripped everyone off. Jack Holtzman ripped everyone off at Electra, I think. So... You know, who knows what she what she made. I don't suppose she paid that much attention. Tell me about her relationship to Dylan and and the stages within that uh, relationship and how it related to the music. Well, they, they famously, they, they're introduced at Gertie's Folk City in New York. They meet. He's a very unformed talent. She's already a star. So she would not want to use that term, I suppose. Um, and then, you know, she hears the songs between you know, Manny and Grossman. You know, they get the songs, you know, lots of demos. So she recorded the songs and then, you know, obviously they become much more friendly. Um, and, of course, uh, they sing together first of all at the Monterey Folk Festival, I think, on the West Coast in about May 63. Um, and... Then they sing together. So then at Newport, 1963, she re returns the favour that Bob Gibson you know, gave to her. So she brings Dylan on. So he's a, so he arrives, as Shelton says, at sort of underground conversation piece, and he leaves Newport a star. So, you know, she brings him on stage. She brings her on stage. They're at workshops together. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, he breaks up with Susie, and they're a kind of an, an item, you know, and I think that, who knows, she obviously did love him. I mean, I think she said time and again that he sort of broke her heart. She said it recently in this film that he really did break her heart. 
Uh, and then they they played a lot. So, but she then, you know, professionally, she brought him on stage at the Hollywood Bowl at Forest Hills. You know, she gets she shared her platform with him, not always to great joy from her audience, um, but you know, she gave him. You know, if you think Hollywood size of the Hollywood Bowl at Forest Hills, that's a big audience. So he's done Newport. He's beginning to be unknown. He's known amongst the folky crowd, and then she gives him this platform. And then of course they plan a they plan a tour. Which doesn't really happen. Um, and she goes to London, you know, and it seems to be all lovely king and queen, you know, oh queen, reigning prince, all that, all that stuff that the fan magazines wrote at the time. And obviously they had a relationship and he's, and he spent time with her in California, um, songwriting. I mean, she apparently tried to get him to look after himself, you know, allowed him space to write. It was clearly, um, there are pictures about there, clearly that was an important time. Um, and then, of course, they come to London in 1965 on the Don't Look Back tour. He doesn't invite her on stage. She's not played yet before. And it ends really badly. And I think it did break her heart. It wasn't very healthy during that period. She had this idea, I think, that he would he would be an activist, as she wanted to be on the barricades, which, of course, he wasn't really, apart from the March on Washington. So she learned eventually wanted, that wasn't his style. He would write the songs that he would want to. So it didn't end well. But then, of course, 10 years later, um, he calls her up and asks him, asks her if she'll join the, the um, Rolling Thunder tour. Um, and of course, you know, Diamonds and Rust, her most famous song, um, chronicles the, the the phone call and, and the kind of you know looks back. I mean, it's a fantastic song. Um, it's a sweet romance. Diamonds and Rust lays bare her emotions. Um, had has she ever talked about that yes, song yeah. in retrospect? Yeah, well, mostly to say that, you know, she was working on something else and Dylan rang and they had this conversation and then it just poured out, you know, from somewhere very deep. Um, uh, and she, you know, she said, I mean, it, she's right. It is her best song by a very long way, most celebrated song. And everything about it, you know, the, the poetry is good, that very distinct guitar riff, the kind of synth, you know, the synthesizer that wails like a banshee in the full moon that she mentions. You know, it's, an, it's a really good song um, and it, you know, it encapsulates their relationship. I mean, but, it, it's, but it is very bittersweet you know, and it's all there. You, you burst on the scene already, a legend, you said my, my poetry was lousy, you said. I mean, it's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary song. Crummy Hotel of Washington Square, um, you know, which is the, the Hotel Earl, um, now the Washington Square Hotel. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's an amazing song, but it obviously it came, well just kind of welled up out of she was arrested during her life through her political activism um yeah was she ever in danger um from government forces or from from the establishment for her activism yes i'm sure i mean yeah she was she spent um two periods in jail um i think you know i think you know i imagine that she was a pain in the ass to the american government but i mean she was where she was seriously actually in physical danger i think was in um, Christmas '72. She went to North. She went to Hanoi. Um, guest of a sort of international control commission. I mean, supposedly there was a ceasefire. You know, there's not going to be any bombing. And she went with a Nuremberg prosecutor and uh, um, minister, you know, a church minister. And um, she was taking letters to prisoners. And the idea was they would see what was going on. And then suddenly, you know, the, the Christmas bombardment started, and she was trapped there for um, a couple of weeks. Here. She, like that. And I think that was 
you know, that must have been a pretty dangerous time because it was the heaviest, I think statistically it was the heaviest bomb, whether it's been succeeded by Ukraine, I don't know, it was that time it was the heaviest bombardment in the history of aerial warfare. So that must have been um, a pretty frightening time. And she was obviously deeply, you know, some pictures of a film of her when she comes back and begins to talk, you know, she wrote about it extensively, she talked about it. She recorded an al album in the bomb shelters, which doesn't make pleasant listing, but it's a, I think for, you know, my son is a very powerful, document it's, it's um you know it uses air aid science you hear women crying you know and then over ladies because there's poetry in her most of it's been spoken with the, with the song chorus you know where he, which is where you know my son um so i think that i think that was pretty dangerous and then in, in the 80s she went to south america latin america um during the sort of high watermark of um dictatorship and of course she was you know, I think she wasn't officially banned from singing, but in reality, most of the concerts couldn't take place. And bomb threats, I think Argentina particularly. Um, uh, but so she sang, you know, she just did concerts where she could, you know, monks and she let mothers disappear. I mean, I think that was, there were kind of distinct threats there. And I think that was, that was probably a, a very dangerous trip for her. You know, and then she went in, you know, more recently she went, was to, to Sarajevo. She was the first singer, first entertainer to go in, taken in by George Soros, when the city was still under siege. And you know, there was, there's remarkable footage, actually, of her, you know, being zipped into her flak jacket and bundled into a car and then kind of being taken around and then meeting the cellist of Sarajevo and she gives a street concert and participates in the performance of Hair that ran throughout the entire siege, I think. Uh, and just going, you know, visiting people in the hospital. I mean, you know, she was there for days she was there, but it was, you know, again, I mean, that was, you know, she had to, that was a very dangerous war zone. What do you think her legacy is in terms of, well, the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the peace movement, and in terms of her contribution to music? Well, she, she's only, I mean, she used, you know, she didn't really identify as a feminist, I don't think, when she first met Gloria Steinem, she didn't, they didn't sort of, and much more recently when they met, she sort of had said to her, you know, I didn't quite, you know, I can kind of understand this feminist stuff, but of course, by just as you touched on earlier, because she was, I mean, she wasn't that strong a woman. In fact, she was having lots of anxiety, but I mean, she appeared a strong woman. And there she was, you know, she was one of the few women, you know, there were pop stars, obviously, but she was one of the few women doing what she was doing out there on her own. So in that sense, she was a, she was a symbol for women. And you know, there's, a, there's a survey called the Woodstock Census, which showed she's the one of the most even among guys, she was one of the most influential women of the period. She's way up there. Second, I mean, she's happiest when the music and the social action come together, clearly. Um, but for much of her life, her music career was secondary, um, which is why it suffered so badly in the 70s and 80s, because she didn't pay any attention. Um, and then the last bit of her career, because she had to, you know, she had to concentrate on it rather more. So she could go out of time for her choosing. But, I, you know, I think she's always... You know, she, she would say that music doesn't change the world, but you can bring people together, you can bring them joy, you know, you can bring them joy, if you're under siege in Sarajevo, you can, you know, it's a galvanizing force. And, you know, she said there's no, there's no kind of social movement without music that's worked. She's not saying that music changes the world, but music is an important part of any movement. She, I mean, she was deeply unfashionable for a long time, and no one in the 70s and 80s, kind of, certainly later 70s and 80s, who, what, you know, um, no one knew who she was. I mean, certainly when I was listening to her in the 70s, 
um, of my classmates were listening to David Cassidy and the Osmonds and all that, you know, Bay City Rollers. I mean, I was kind of really weird going home and listening to Byers and Ben Cohen and Jazzy and that stuff. Um, and then she, you know, she dropped from view really in late 70s and 80s. I mean, she, Rolling Thunder brought her some visibility, but then she, in the 80s, was a, and she almost gave up. I, mean, I remember, remember interviewing at the end of the 80s when she said, I, you know, I thought to be I thought I'd, I'd give up. And at the end, the end, the end of the 80s, she was saying, I just want, I want to go out of time of my choosing. I've got maybe, you know, five years or so or whatever. And, you know, as I said, when I met her in 2018, well, we weren't even half done in 1989, as it turned out. But, you know, I think and people have, the younger folkies since have they've learned to appreciate. I mean, her, her last manager, Mark Spector, was very clever in putting on tour with people like the Indigo Girls and Mary Chippen after young, young musicians were coming up. Um, Josh Ritter, who knew who she was, whose family, you know, whose family is probably knew who she was. I mean, she said the first time someone said, my mother has all your records, I wanted to punch them out, you know. Uh, but so, you know, she, she, she came together with a group of younger folk acts who did know her music because it had been there in the kind of family, you know. And Josh Ritter told me that when he told his mum, you know, he was, he was going to be touring with Byers, she was beyond thrilled, you know. So she, she began to, you know, she had to, she had to persevere, play small venues, kind of find a way up again. And then people, I think, are beginning now to recognise that she she played a very significant role. I mean, the voice, the voice is fantastic. She was a very significant guitar player. It is intriguing when people like Robert Plant pop up and talk about how he heard her. So, so, so I think, I think when the you know when the history of this period is finally written and we're all gone, people will see her as a very influential figure. And like you know, I think when she leaves this earth, I hope not for a very long time. She's a Eighty-two. I think I think that people will look back and realize what a significant role um, she played, because you know she didn't care about being popular. She cared about doing what she believed to be, to be right, and that's still um, what she does. And now she's retired from the stage. You know she's painting mostly, and um, she's using her art to raise money for causes. You know there's money that's gone to Ukraine. There's money that's gone to. Um, Stacey Abrams' campaign in, in, in um, Georgia. There was money that went in honor of John Prine. You know, um, you know, she's still doing, in a different way, she's still doing what she's done for 60 years. Your life has been, I, you know, sort of basically intrinsically linked to Joan Byers. And yeah. you've, you've met and interviewed her a number of times. Yes. And you mentioned the story about Maureen at the beginning of the interview, yes. your sister, who gave you your first guitar which was the lead into you getting yes. to know Joan Byers and you went to a concert with Maureen I thought of going to Paris to see her but the timing didn't work particularly and I thought well the last concert that's the one I should go to the very last concert so I kind of rang my sister I was in New York and she was in near Malaga and I said do you, know, do you want to come and see uh, Joan Byers it's the very last concert you know? so she said, well you know I don't want to wait to Madrid for one concert so I said well I'm offering you you know, I think this, we have a nice few days, sisters together in the hotel, and uh, and you know, it was your, you know, it was, she said what she, I said, you know, you, it was you who started this journey with the guitar and that record. You never told me, so I said, yes, indeed, some times, you know. So I said, well, it'd be nice to sort of complete the circle. Do you want to say, oh, all right, and yeah, okay. So, you know, I booked and met in Madrid and stayed at the hotel opera just because it was convenient, but turned out to be the hotel that the buyers and the band were staying at, because right by the stage door. 
Um, so, you know, we had this nice time in Madrid and we saw this last concert, which was very emotional. Um, and then I came back and finished off my book, which is dedicated to Maureen. Um, and she saw it through, but she didn't live to see the book came out. She died very suddenly in Spain during COVID. So, I mean, Maureen, you had no particular interest in this music, really. Um, but it happened, she had this, someone had given her this record which she had no recollection of, and then her boss bought me this guitar, and, and there it was. So, um, anyway, the book remains dedicated to her. The, the book is, it's a fascinating read. I think it's told with real love uh, and affection. No, I don't delve into her love life, that's not the purpose. It's to try and show what, you know, the Venn diagram, I've tried to show how she fits in to not just to music, but into the kind of, you know, marital studies, peace studies, how she's part of the late 20th century. Like that's that's what the book tries to show, where she fits in, why she matters as a musician and as a civil rights figure, because she does matter. Uh, and people, you know, people must not write her off. You know, you could not like her voice, but they have to recognise she had a very, very important role to play and she played it very well. Elizabeth Johnson, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Right now at Safeway, get your skin winter ready with big savings on all your favorite skincare products. Shop for deals on items like Gillette Mach 3 Racers, Gillette Labs Racers and Blades, Venus Racers and Blades, and Native Shampoo, Conditioner, and Body Wash. Plus, shop the buy two, get one free baking event and save on items like selected varieties of handy foil and good cook pans. Offer expires December 26th. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for full offer details. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.